You're listening to New Voices in Philosophy, a production of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project. This podcast is sponsored by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and partner institutions. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Haley Brennan. In this episode, I speak with Phil Yor, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Virginia Tech, about the political philosophy of Frederick Douglass. Douglass was born into slavery, but eventually became one of the most influential Black abolitionists of the 19th century. Phil's research focuses on Douglass as a political philosopher, with special concern for Douglass's conception of the U.S. Constitution as an anti-slavery document and his belief that citizenship is a function of one's contribution to a polity. Phil argues that Douglass considers abolitionist resistance itself to be a way of contributing to American society, which leads to the conclusion that enslaved people fighting against the injustice of slavery make themselves American citizens in doing so. We also discuss the philosophical value of the autobiography genre, and Phil offers listeners some recommendations for where to begin if they want to incorporate Frederick Douglass into their History of Philosophy courses. So Phil, thank you so much for being here. If you wouldn't mind just getting us started by telling us a little bit about who Douglas was, his life, his work, and then also your work on him and what you'd like for us to talk about today. Absolutely. Uh, really excited to be here with you today. Um, so Frederick Douglass was a, an American, a Black American abolitionist and political philosopher in the 19th century. Uh, he was born into slavery around 1818. He doesn't actually know uh, when his exact birthday was, although the historical consensus now is that it was in 1818, uh, and he's born into slavery in Eastern Maryland. Um, he grows up for the first few years of his life, um, cared for by his grandmother, uh, Betsy Bailey. Um, and then um, after a few years, he's forced to work in the plantation of the Alds, and then is also forced to work in Baltimore. Um, in 1838, around the age of 20, um, Douglas, uh, plots and successfully escapes from slavery uh, in Baltimore. He acquires a, a sailor's uniform and some papers and is able to take a series of trains north with the assistance of his wife, Anna, who at the time was, was free. He and Anna ultimately settle in uh, Massachusetts, where he gets involved in the abolitionist movement that's burgeoning there at the time. In particular, Douglas uh, goes on to meet William Lloyd Garrison, a leading white abolitionist in the period, and gives a series of anti-slavery lectures over a number of years with Garrison and the American Anti-Slavery Society all across what is today in the US, the Northeast and the Midwest. So although Douglas begins his career as an uh, abolitionist working with William Lloyd Garrison and the American Anti-Slavery Society, by the late 1840s and early 1850s, Douglas comes to break with Garrison. And my research on Douglas focuses specifically on this period uh, mm. of his political philosophy. So one way of thinking about the disagreement that Garrison and Douglas come to have is about what kinds of political activity are going to be most important or most effective in uh, uh, ending slavery in the United States. For Garrison, uh, anti-slavery, uh, abolitionism should focus on strategies of moral suasion, that is, using philosophical or moral or religious arguments uh, to persuade Americans that slavery is wrong. For Douglas, by the early 1850s, he thinks that moral suasion isn't enough, in essence. He thinks that uh, it's necessary to use American political institutions and values to successfully uh, 
uh, combat slavery and white supremacy. This is a, a program or an anti-slavery strategy that's, that's referred to by historians as political abolitionism. One key point of disagreement between Garrison and Douglas in this period is over whether we should think of the U.S. Constitution as a pro-slavery document or an anti-slavery document. Garrison thinks it's a pro-slavery document, whereas Douglas thinks that it's a, an anti-slavery document. So uh, during the Civil War, um, so uh, by the early 1860s, Douglas fiercely advocates for uh, Lincoln and the federal government to take aggressive steps to abolish slavery entirely. And he's also active in recruiting black soldiers to serve in Union Army units. So including uh, in particular the 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment. This is the, the, the unit that's depicted in the 1989 movie, uh, Glory. And then after the Civil War, Douglas takes on a variety of governmental roles, including he serves as president of the Freedmen's Bank uh, during Reconstruction. He serves as part of a diplomatic envoy to the Dominican Republic in the 1870s and he serves as the Council General to Haiti. And Douglas ultimately dies in 1895 from a heart attack at age uh, about 77. Yeah, thank you so much. So I do have a couple questions just based on what you just told us. So the first question that I have is not so philosophical, it's more biographical, but I'm just curious um, how Douglas learned to read and write. Is that something that he would have been taught by his grandmother or is it something that he picked up on his own? Do you know that part of his biographical background? So the way that Douglas recounted himself in a series of autobiographies that he writes, he actually writes three separate autobiographies. Uh, one, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass in 1845, and then a second one, My Bondage and My Freedom, in 1855. That's the one I mostly focus on in my own research. And then uh, The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, he writes a couple of editions after the Civil War. Um, but in those autobiographies, Douglass describes the um, active effort that he took to covertly, secretly learn how to read. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't have been permitted to learn how to read by his slaveholders. Um, in fact, early in his autobiography, he describes um, uh, residing in Baltimore with a, a different branch of the family of the Alds. The, the mother in this branch of the family starts to teach Douglas how to read, gives him a handful of lessons until um, the, the father of the, uh, the side of the Ald family uh, discovers that she's doing this and urges her not to do so, uh, says that it will pose a threat to the kind of order that uh, slaveholders are trying mm -hmm. to, to maintain. Um, but Douglas, of course, um, having gotten a, a sense of uh, the potentials of learning how to read, starts to be very active in, in finding other ways to, to learn how to do so. So, for instance, he starts um, going out in the city of Baltimore and starts trading his, his meals, his lunch, in essence, to white boys around his age to give him reading lessons. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he initially starts building these bonds with young white boys who are, are showing him their reading books and walking him through lessons in how to read. And um, ultimately, those end up occasioning a set of conversations where he and the young white boys who are teaching him how to read start to reflect on the differences in their position, the wrongness of slavery. And um, so there ends up being this very strong connection for Douglas between this mm. idea that uh, the kinds of bonds that are forged through these kinds of activities like education and this shared moral sensibility where he and the young white boys that are he's working with come to quickly recognize the injustice of their situation. They will affirm that he ought to have all the same rights, ought to have the same kind of freedoms that they do. Um, so yes, Douglas uh, uh, has a, a challenging experience in, in 
learning how to read um, and also sees it as, uh, or his experience he sees as the basis of a key part of his abolitionism going forward, this idea that uh, it's possible to uh, shape people's moral common sense in a way to uh, recognize the injustice of slavery. I mean, as somebody who thinks a lot about marginalized voices in the history of philosophy, I often, you know, reflect on how many brilliant people in history there probably were who didn't um, have either the educational opportunities to first learn how to read and write or the resources to actually record their ideas, even if they were able to read and write. And I feel this urge to say, wow, like we're so lucky that we have this record of Douglas's thought, but you know, it wasn't luck, right? It was his intentional sort of tenacious um, attachment to wanting to gain these skills. And that connects to another question that I have for you. So literacy or, you know, being able to read seems to connect to this point you were making about the role of how do we interpret documents? How do we interpret like the texts that sort of define our common political culture? And what is their role in changing that culture or context? It really stood out to me that Douglas actually interprets the U.S. Constitution as an anti-slavery document. I think uh, to me and probably to a lot of listeners, you know, that might come as kind of a surprise. I think in our contemporary context, we tend to think of the U.S. Constitution as having provisions in it that were meant to protect slavery and protect the institution of slaveholding. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about Douglas's claim that the U.S. Constitution is or maybe can be actually an anti-slavery document. Yeah, so by the early 1850s, as I mentioned, uh, Douglas adopts this uh, political abolitionist uh, orientation where he thinks that we need to use American political institutions and values to combat slavery and white supremacy. And one central plank of his political abolitionism is this idea that as you said, that the U.S. Constitution is an anti-slavery document. And um, just as many listeners today might be uh, surprised on some level to be thinking of the U.S. Constitution in this way, certainly in the 1850s, um, uh, many of Douglass's uh, contemporary abolitionists also um, saw the, the U.S. Constitution as, in essence, a pro-slavery document. Mm-hmm. William Lloyd Garrison, for instance, would point to um, elements of it like the three-fifths clause, um, that in essence gives uh, outsized political power to the southern states, um, while also devaluing the personhood of, of, of black people residing in the country, um, and also uh, a variety of other clauses and elements of the Constitution that, for instance, will, will help enforce uh, measures against fugitive slaves who escape. So, and we might also think about just the intentions of the of the, the authors of the document, and given. Uh, how many of uh, the founders themselves owned slaves, it might strain credulity to think that their intention was to author uh, an anti-slavery document. Um, And there are a number of strategies for abolitionists who want to argue that the Constitution is an anti-slavery document uh, that are developed Mm -hmm. in the 1840s and the 1850s. For some folks, they, they provide either nuanced uh, textual forms of interpretation will they'll, they'll dig very deeply into the, the strict meaning or the strict letter of the Constitution and say, well, if we look at all these different passages, we don't find uh, direct statements that affirm the legitimacy of slavery. So if we just look at the strict letter of the Constitution, um, uh, uh, it's, it, uh, 
it's not a pro-slavery document, or will uh, folks, uh, some abolitionists will argue that uh, we can give nuanced or complicated interpretations of the intentions of the founders, for instance, and to imagine them as being committed to some ideal of liberty that's a promise for the future to be realized. And Douglas at times in uh, both his writings and speeches that he's giving seems to invoke moments like this. He will sometimes say, if we look at the plain uh, text of the Constitution, we don't find any clear statement that affirms slavery. Um, he will, for instance, in his uh, 5th of July speech, so this is a speech he gives on July 5th, 1852, one of uh, his most well-known speeches, where he will uh, describe the, uh, the foundational documents of, uh, of the United States. He's uh, uh, immediately referring to the Declaration of Independence, but I think he also has the Constitution in mind as these ring bolts of our destiny. Um, where they embody a set of values that the nation ought to struggle to realize. So he has all of that as elements of his anti-slavery anti reading of the Constitution. But I think at core, the way in which he's thinking about what it means to interpret the U.S. Constitution as an anti-slavery document is connected to the experience that he had as a child learning how to read. It's connected to this idea of a moral common sense that we all have access mm. to. So when Douglas will appeal, for instance, to natural law or natural rights and say that slavery is incompatible with natural law, I think that what Douglas has in mind is he's asking his audience to activate their own moral common sense, their own recognition of what a just uh, polity would look like. And in virtue of being guided by that moral common sense, the sense of what justice requires, to remake the document uh, the U.S. Constitution, or really the, the the civic ethos that it that it reflects and embodies, to remake it into um, an anti-slavery document and a, a, a civic ethos that's more fully and inclusively committed to liberty. Um, so there's this always this interesting continuity, I think, in Douglas's thought between uh, experiences of his childhood uh, and the the lessons that he takes up, especially I think in the 1850s for his abolitionist politics. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that a lot of the ideas that we're talking about today are articulated in autobiographical writings, which, you know, as you might imagine, involve recounting storytelling of some of these experiences. So I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that later on. But one other thing that I know you work on is sort of this idea of citizenship that Douglas is working with. And one thing that the Constitution does, right, is it defines who has certain rights in relation to their status as citizens. And my understanding is, you know, that at the time that Douglas was making these claims about the U.S. Constitution, enslaved Black Americans were not regarded as full citizens. Is that correct? So I, I think that is in essence correct, and it's a point that Douglas challenges in his, in his political thought in this period. So a common theme of Douglas's political abolitionism is the sense of our power to make ourselves or to make elements of our, our polity, to remake or reforge them. So just like Douglas thinks that we're able to remake the meaning of the Constitution, he thinks that Black Americans, including enslaved Black Americans, are in the 1850s under a, a, a regime of profound uh, oppression and, and racial exclusion. When the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 has just been passed, Douglas insists that mm -hmm. enslaved Black Americans are already citizens who the polity ought to acknowledge as such. And 
this is a theme through uh, uh, a number of his speeches and writings throughout the 1850s. So, for instance, Douglas in an 1853 speech, The Claims of Our Common Cause, states that we declare that we are and of right we ought to be American citizens. Mm -hmm. And that on its own, the we there might not be totally clear. Douglas is clearly referring to, to Black Americans. And to that extent, he is in fact in line with a number of other Black abolitionists in the 1840s and 1850s who do argue that free Black Americans, nominally free Black Americans, uh, are U.S. citizens who ought to be acknowledged as such. And in fact, some states uh, inconsistently confer some degree of citizenship and political rights to Black Americans. And in particular, Black, Ameri black abolitionists in this period, and uh, uh, Martha Jones has a book on this, a recent book on this birthright citizenship that uh, very clearly lays out the ways in which Black abolitionists imagine a claim to, or think of a way of explaining what it means to be a citizen in terms of being born into a polity and thereby having a birthright to be a citizen mm -hmm. that ultimately gets crystallized into the 14th Amendment after the Civil War that uh, encodes a, a birthright to American citizenship for anyone uh, born within the territory, essentially. Um, but Douglas, I think distinguishes himself from that strand of black abolitionist thought in this period by holding that enslaved black Americans are also already citizens of the polity who ought to be acknowledged as such. And he does that by giving a different account of the basis of citizenship, a different way of thinking about what it means to be a citizen. So for instance, in a speech in which he's condemning the Dred Scott decision that in essence denies any kind of formal claim to citizenship to, to black Americans, Douglas states that the Constitution knows all the human inhabitants of the country as part of the people. And also note that Douglas is insisting that the Constitution recognizes uh, anyone, all human inhabitants as part of the people, in mm -hmm. spite of uh, this ruling that's just been issued from the Supreme Court on what the Constitution says or what it means. So clearly part of what Douglas has in mind here is this idea of contesting what we should take the Constitution to mean to try to continually remake its meaning. But Given that Douglas thinks that, that all human inhabitants are part of the people, he has in mind enslaved black Americans as well mm -hmm. as being citizens in the sense that they're part of the people that make up this polity. He'll also frequently refer to enslaved black Americans as uh, uh, his fellow countrymen. So if he's thinking of himself as a citizen, he also has in mind by referring to enslaved black Americans as fellow countrymen, he's thinking of them as well as fellow citizens. And so, then the question I think is, well, on what basis would we say that enslaved black Americans are citizens? They're denied any kind of legal, civil, political right that we might associate with citizenship. And here, Douglas links the, the idea of what it is to be a citizen to the idea of what it means to contribute to a polity or to a nation. Mm. So there's a, a, a passage in a, a speech that he gives in 1851, the, the Free Negroes Places in America, which brings up this point. So in the speech, Douglas states, I believe that simultaneously with the landing of the pilgrims, there landed slaves on the shore of this continent, and that for 230 years and more, we have had a foothold on this continent. We have grown up with you. We have watered your soil with our tears, nourished it with our blood, tilled it with our hands. Why should we not stay here? We came when it was a wilderness and were the pioneers of civilization on this continent. We leveled your forests, our hands removed the stumps from your fields, and raised the first crops and brought the first produce to your tables. We have been with you and are still with you, 
have been with you in adversity and by the help of God will be with you in prosperity. We have fought for this country. We are American citizens. And many of the types of contribution that Douglas are laying out here, the leveling of the forest, the removing of the stumps from your fields, are references to the kinds of labor that not only nominally free, but also enslaved Black Americans would have been performing. So in a passage like this, Douglas is linking this claim that enslaved Black Americans are citizens to the point that they've made profound and essential contributions to the nation. So in essence, in a nutshell, Douglas in the 1850s claims that enslaved Black Americans are American citizens because of their contributions to the polity. Yeah, and that passage is so helpful for illustrating his position too, because I feel like you can hear it start out with something a little bit more like that birthright kind of claim, where it's like, you know, we've been here as long as white people who call themselves Americans have been here, but then it transitions to being not a claim about, you know, how, yeah, long one's history, extends back and is intertwined with a particular place, but rather with how one has contributed to the um, project of constructing a society throughout that history. And that makes me wonder, I mean, it almost sounds like from that passage, Douglas is describing slaves as immigrants. And of course, slaves and enslaved Black Americans were not free in their choice to come to this land, right? And they were forcibly kidnapped and, you know, brought already as enslaved individuals to the land that became the Americas. But I still feel like I hear a little bit of rhetoric that today almost sounds like rhetoric about immigration. And I'm just curious if you think that this case that Douglas is making about enslaved Black Americans and citizenship could be relevant to some conversations people are having today about immigration and like what it really means to be a citizen of this country. I think there's some really interesting resonances between the account of citizenship that Douglas develops in this period, linking it to this idea of contribution and thinking about the claims to political membership that uh, migrants can have in a, in a contemporary context. I think maybe one helpful distinction to draw here is ways of thinking about citizenship where we think of it as a status that's conferred on us mm-hmm. by a political that the, the State Department gives me my passport or the state confers upon me uh, the right to vote or the right to certain forms of legal representation. And so there we might think that the relationship is supposed to be, I give some kind of justification or some kind of reason to persuade the polity to confer the status upon me. Douglas, I think, is, is thinking about citizenship in a different way in this context mm-hmm. of his argument that enslaved Black Americans are already U.S. citizens. He's saying that the contributions that they've made constitute themselves as citizens. So it's not that they give the nation reasons to decide whether or not to confer citizenship, but that in virtue of the fact that Black Americans are contributing to the nation, participating in uh, in, it, in these ways, um, that that itself is the lifeblood of citizenship on this, on this conception. And so we could think of that as connected to work, for instance, that's done by Joseph Karens and Sarah Song, who will point to ways of thinking about claims that migrants may have to uh, a right to remain, for instance, uh, mm-hmm. in virtue of the fact that they've resided in the, in the, the, within the territory of the United States for a, a, a 
a certain period of time. And I think one connection here, and this connects back to another part of, of your question, is that I think the reasoning in both of these types of cases, it's not just that someone is sitting or residing in a given within a given boundary for a period of time, but the kinds of things that people are up to inevitably when they find themselves within a particular polity. It's the kinds of social bonds that they form. It's the kind of inevitable everyday social and economic interactions that they engage in and contributions that they make. And so, again, I think that the interesting move that Douglas is making here, and to this extent, it connects him to this tradition of Republican citizenship, is to say that it is the very fact that I am acting in this way to contribute to the nation. That itself is what makes me a citizen. It doesn't just give someone else a reason to maybe decide to give me citizenship. No, no, no. The idea is the fact that I'm acting in this way makes me into a citizen. Yeah, I was just wondering if you could say a little bit more about Republican citizenship. I think that I I have a general idea of what that means, but it might be helpful for me and for uh, listeners to get a little bit of uh, a refresher. Yeah, so on a Republican conception of citizenship, one is a citizen because she contributes to the polity or Mm -hmm. contributes in the right way. And it might be a little bit surprising that Douglas draws on this idea of citizenship to uh, argue for this radically inclusive claim that in some sense enslaved black Americans are US citizens. The reason that it's surprising, at least from the perspective of traditional Western political theory, is that This idea of Republican citizenship is traditionally very hierarchical and exclusionary. It maybe has a bad rap for a good reason. So the reason that this is the case is that the the kinds of things that count as the right kind of contribution on a traditional way of thinking about Republican citizenship, these are things like serving in the military, holding political office, deliberating for hours on end in your uh, city-state's assembly. So... For instance, we might think of ancient Athens and the the, uh, elite males of the city count as citizens because they're in the assembly deliberating all day. That's the activity that makes them citizens. That's definitely the picture that springs to my mind. I imagine like people in togas standing around gesticulating, you know. (laughs) But the the men gesticulating in togas only get to do this activity that makes them citizens because of the social reproductive labor performed by women and slaves in their society. Yeah. And so... uh, we, so when we think about Republican, the tradition of Republican citizenship, we think of it as building in this core distinction between the kinds of contributions that matter and the kinds that don't. And one way of thinking about Douglas's intervention here is to radically revise our idea of what it means to contribute to a political mm-hmm. community, to totally dissolve the distinction between the kinds of contributions that count and the kinds that don't. That was another question that I had. So it sounded like from the description that you were just giving a minute ago of the ways that Black enslaved Americans were able to contribute to this political community, a lot of those ways were related to labor, which makes sense, right? Because they're enslaved and they're being essentially forced to perform certain tasks that are core labor tasks for different purposes, um, some more economic, some more having to do with domestic reproduction, some intertwined. But I'm curious, are there other ways that Douglas conceives of enslaved Black Americans as contributing? So I think that ultimately for Douglas, this is connected to the idea that we picked up on earlier, that there's many different kinds of everyday 
mm. moral and social interactions that we have with each other that have a kind of intrinsic value to them. It's whenever we're exercising our moral common sense to try to shape what our community values. And so Douglas thinks that someone contributes to a polity, to a political community, and thereby makes themselves a citizen whenever they act in a way that uh, contests or shapes what that community values, tries to mm. remake or reshape what it values. Mm. And where this comes out, I think, in the first place is in uh, Douglas's second autobiography, the one that he writes in 1855, uh, My Bondage and My Freedom. Early in that, in the second autobiography, he describes the state of, or the, the, the political condition of the plantation, uh, or plantations in general in the South that enslaved people find themselves on. And he describes it as highly isolated. So he'll say that, um, the politicians and preachers keep away. There's no meaningful interaction with the wider state. And there's no clear claims of conflicting rights or conflicting property claims in the plantation. There's the slaveholder who has all of the property, including most of the other people who reside on the plantation. And there are the enslaved people who are subject mm. to its power. And so I think one way of thinking about what Douglas is doing in the first half of his of this autobiography, when he's focused on his, his life as when he's enslaved as opposed to after he escapes, is that he's answering a kind of philosophical how possible question. How is it possible for us to think of the plantation as a political community in which there are, are people with competing rights? In particular, Douglas builds up over the course of the first half of his autobiography to argue that enslaved Black Americans have rights of rebellion. And here, I don't think he just has in mind an idea that uh, in virtue of being subject to certain forms of oppression, we have a moral right in general, or enslaved Black Americans do, to break with or to escape from the polity. He thinks that. But he also thinks that enslaved Black Americans have rights to contest and reshape the, 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 the political structure of the plantation, or at least to struggle to do so and to be, and here's the important point for him, to be recognized as having political standing on the plantation because they are struggling to do so. So one example that Douglas has is uh, a technique of what he calls appeal that enslaved people would sometimes engage in, that you would have, for instance, an, an overseer uh, who would behave in ab especially abusive ways towards an enslaved person, and then the enslaved person would go to the slaveholder and appeal for a uh, kind of intervention. And it's interesting that Douglas focuses on these moments. We might wonder how effective that they, they were. I mean, um, how much of a of the moral sensibility of the slaveholder could we rely on to actually intervene on in cases like this? But mm -hmm. Douglas sees these as acts in which enslaved people are trying to contest or reshape the normative fabric of the community that enslaved people find themselves in. And so that's the kind of activity for Douglas that makes us citizens. It, on the one hand, involves contesting oppressive values that we would want to reject, and also at the same time to build bonds of solidarity with other enslaved people through resistance. So for Douglas, there's this, and again, this comes back to the theme of teaching one another how to read. One of Douglas's uh, most important moments, I think, in his second autobiography focuses on a Sabbath school that he organizes with a group of other enslaved people where they teach one another how to read through study of the, of the Bible. 
And he describes the bonds that he forges with other enslaved people involved in the Sabbath school as deep commitments of love, trust, loyalty, and non-paternalism, a commitment for each to be able to exercise their own judgment. He goes on to describe this as a, as a band of brothers. And so here, this again goes back to the idea of uh, the, the promise that's built into the, the political agency that we each find in ourselves on Douglas's view. And from that, he develops an idea of contribution that he then uses to think about Black Americans as a people in the nation, as similarly contesting the American civic ethos, the polity's values, mm. and thereby constituting uh, Black Americans uh, collectively as citizens of the U.S. Mm. So I have a question that I'm just trying to, for my own comprehension, reconcile what sound to me like two tendencies and maybe I'm misunderstanding how these fit together. But so on the one hand, we have this idea that you articulated so well and so clearly that the U.S. Constitution can be an anti-slavery document. Um, Although, I mean, as you noted, and which makes perfect sense, it's the sense in which it's an anti-slavery document is something that is sort of predicated on the potential of us as political agents more than something that's just contained in the letter of that document. But then we have sort of almost on the other hand, this account of polity, of American polity that says, look, it doesn't really matter what the Constitution says about who's a citizen and who has political rights. The Constitution doesn't accurately describe the political and so the social relationships and the care relationships that we really are in. So why worry about the Constitution? So I'm just curious if I'm missing a link there or if there are these two tendencies or sort of how they relate to one another. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. Here's a nice way of putting it. So Douglas thinks that enslaved Black Americans have rights of rebellion to right. resist their oppression. Now, Douglas clearly doesn't mean by that that we can find anywhere in, you know, positive law, you know, in the Constitution or elsewhere, a right of rebellion that's conferred to enslaved people. What he means is that uh, enslaved people have this normative claim to uh, exercise political agency in, uh, through rebellion in order to uh, protect their well-being and their and their dignity to resist the forms of oppression and exploitation mm-hmm. to which they're subject. Mm-hmm. And I think that One way of thinking about it is that the goal ultimately is to have these rights formally encoded into uh, the polity's institutions or into its law. I mean, I guess when we're thinking about the right of rebellion, the goal would actually be to make it moot by, you know, realizing a fully just polity. But the core idea is that we would uh, try to build towards institutionalizing these Mm -hmm. rights. But... In the first place, what Douglas is trying to point out is that we can view enslaved Black Americans as possessing claims on the polity Mm. on the U.S., that the country may succeed or fail in recognizing at any given point, but those rights still persist. And in particular, they are rights that are specifically a claim on the U.S. as a political community, as opposed to uh, a more general kind of moral right that is a claim on anyone and everyone. Douglas mm-hmm. thinks that enslaved people also have those uh, general human rights, we could say. Um, but he also thinks that enslaved people have claims like a right of rebellion that are a political claim on the U.S. And then the challenge is to see if the uh, the, the challenge is to bring the U.S. to uh, 
uh, acknowledge those rights through by through uh, formalizing them in institutions and in law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then that gets back to the idea that challenging or struggling against existing institutions for Douglas can be thought of as a way of contributing positively to the, to the transformation of those institutions into institutions that are more just and sort of enshrine a more just reality, political reality. Exactly. There's this like positive feedback loop or this virtuous yeah. circle between the activity of resisting uh, the efforts to reshape what the polity values and the kinds of rights that are generated through that resistance. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about just Douglas's autobiographical writings and what it's like to work with those as philosophical source texts. So I'm curious whether you think that the genre and form that Douglas is engaging in does sort of special philosophical work for him. So I think for Douglas, there's an important connection between the idea of telling a story mm. and the kind of activity that he thinks is constitutive of being a member of a political community or being a citizen, namely contesting and shaping what the community values. That in essence, often what we're doing when we're trying to contest and shape what we should value, we're telling different kinds of stories, either about ourselves and where we're coming from, our perspectives, our needs, our values, or a story about the the history of our community or our nation. So to that extent, I think it's it makes a great deal of sense. We should expect, and I think Douglas recognizes, that the way in which he's going to advance his kind of argument is through narratives like autobiographies or construing it you know, slightly more broadly, but the narrative structure, the rhetorical structure of the types of speeches and editorials mm-hmm. that he writes as well. I mean, I think one of the things that I'll add for Douglas um, that I think is important here is this relationship between being able to tell our story and being vulnerable as mm. a sense of being so one of the, I think, we, we talked at the beginning about one guiding experience from Douglas's childhood where he learns how to read uh, in these exchanges with young white boys on the streets of Baltimore. Another important experience that Douglas has as a child is with his mother. Um, so soon after he's um, forced to work on the plantation of the Alds, uh, he describes this episode in his autobiography in which um, one night he's refused dinner by the plantation cook, Aunt Katie. And that night, his mother moves covertly uh, from a separate plantation that, that she is enslaved on to Douglas's and finds Douglas hungry in the night. He hasn't been fed. And she chides or, or chews out the plantation cook for not feeding Douglas and then provides him with some food. And, Douglas describes this as the as a moment in which he felt like somebody's child. Mm. And he goes on to say that this is a moment that's instructive for him. And so I think that part of what's at stake for Douglas here is this kind of is this recognition of the types of fundamental vulnerability that make up what it is in essence to be human in relation to other human beings mm. and to see a type of value in the uh, uh, arrangement of that vulnerability in, in ways that are conducive to human flourishing, that his mother cares for him 
And so I think that for Douglas, part of the challenge of trying to build the kind of community that we want to live in, yes, it involves justice, but it also involves certain forms of care. And I think for Douglas, this becomes very vivid um, precisely through this activity of narration where he's able to, through reflection in his own life, get clear for himself and make clear to his readers what it is like to be vulnerable. And it's once we have that kind of model for one way of struggling, this struggle of trying to care for one another, the kind of thing that uh, the enslaved people involved in the Sabbath school that Douglas organized, the kind of thing that they do in caring for one another, this is the kind of activity that makes them citizens. So I guess there's a couple of strands in there. One is that I think that for Douglas, we can gain a kind of understanding of ourselves through narrative, for instance, recognizing our fundamental vulnerability to one another. There's the idea that through narrative, we're able to provide models for mm. others to emulate in some sense. And then I also just think that in general for Douglas, there's a distinctive way of thinking that, that narrative helps us get at that is maybe different from the kinds of things that at least contemporary academic analytic philosophers try to do. Yeah. So sometimes as, as analytic philosophers these days, we either try to establish things that are necessary. We know that one claim automatically for sure logically is guaranteed to follow from another. Or on the opposite end, we try to establish claims of bare possibility. Here is one of the many different ways in which things could have gone. And I think that part of what narrative does is it sits in this middle ground where it gives us a both a rich set of tools to work with to imagine ways of acting and moving through the world but also provides some kinds of limitations on on our thought or the ways that we imagine the world could be after all douglas also wants to emphasize the severe and disturbing and profoundly unjust forms of oppression that enslaved people mm -hmm. are in fact subject to on the plantation and so for Douglas, it's not just reimagining the utopian community, but in this very situated way, thinking about our own experience and processing it, theorizing it through the telling of a narrative that both helps us to imagine things that we could do to try to make it otherwise while being responsive to the various kinds of uh, obstacles and oppression and suffering that we face as we struggle to do that. You mentioned that one thing Douglas is doing in that story about his mother and feeling like somebody's child is inviting the reader to relate emotionally to what it's like, as you said, to be somebody's child. What does it feel like to be somebody's child? And I think that that's another thing that, you know, contemporary analytic philosophers, I, I'll just say that, sometimes think doesn't really belong in philosophy is like appealing to emotions and this like fuzzy sort of scary area of like subjective personal experiences and things like that. I think one thing that's at stake there is also distinguishing between one way of thinking about narrative as one way of articulating experience mm -hmm. that I do think that many philosophers are comfortable with and quite good at using, which mm -hmm. is the analysis of a narrative, a story as an example to illustrate yeah. the point, for instance. Um, when in a moral philosophy paper, we pick up an example of blame or forgiveness to illustrate, here's the kind of thing that I'm after. Let's figure out what's going on in this case to, to understand what I mean by blame or uh, what it takes to forgive someone. But I think that what can be more challenging is to understand the, the, the telling of a story as yeah. itself a way of making an argument. And yeah. that doesn't always fit together with some of the, or 
it's at least it takes some work to make it interface with a lot of the tools like yeah. distilling things into premises and conclusions and identifying the justification for each premise that are the bread and butter of contemporary philosophical methodology. I think in my own experience, it's by no means impossible. I've aspired to, at least in my work and a little bit you know, today, to try to articulate my claims and views in ways that uh, would be legible to contemporary political philosophers. Um, but I think that part of the, the challenge here is to both do the work of drawing together the way that we as academic philosophers today often talk with the way in which Douglas is talking, while also taking him seriously on his own terms, mm -hmm. both in terms mm -hmm. of the content of what he's saying and the form of it, uh, taking him seriously as doing philosophy in the autobiography. Yeah, I mean, back to the idea of like a positive feedback loop. It's like, how do you take on board Douglas's contributions sort of taking him seriously on his own terms, as you suggest, to the fullest extent possible, without then rejecting everything that we find useful and productive about contemporary, you know, more or less analytic philosophy. Like, what would it look like to do philosophy with both of these resources, trying our best to respect them both? You know, that might be something different from what the way that we were trained, but it's not about rejecting the tradition that we were trained in so much as it is about reimagining its next steps, you know, thinking creatively about what its next steps could be for us. I think that's a really nice way of putting it. I think it's connected to this idea of thinking that what we're doing in uh, retelling the history of philosophy is building new narratives in that sense. Mm. That what we're trying to do is to take up the story that's already been told and think of different ways of telling it, different ways of elaborating it. Yeah. Great. Well, I just want to ask you, you know, what's a good introductory text that people who might want to start assigning Douglas in their classes could look at as a starting point? You know, what's one text that you think all philosophy students would benefit from encounter with? Yeah. You asked for, for one recommendation for Douglas. I'll, I'll give three really ideas. You might use one of these in, in one of three different contexts. The more the merrier. I think that the classic text that some number of students might have already encountered, at least in uh, excerpted form, is his speech, What to the Slaves, the 4th of July. So I, I mentioned this briefly before. It's uh, a speech that Douglas gives in 1852 to the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society. Mm. Widely recognized as a rhetorical masterpiece. It has, um, unfortunately, it has three parts to it. And sometimes people miss this because of the way it is often excerpted. So the first part is this sort of relatively traditional laudatory story of the founding of the U.S. that then transitions to a moment of condemnation uh, in which Douglas uh, uh, says, in essence, that, that what, what could the Fourth of July possibly be to an enslaved person who is fundamentally excluded from the values of this nation's promise? This Fourth of July is yours, he says to white Americans, not mine. Mm -hmm. And then, but then there's also this final moment of the speech, which often gets cut out in excerpts, but I think it's this moment of hopefulness where near the end, um, Douglas, again, goes back to this theme of interpreting the Constitution and says that it's in the power of any ordinary citizen to interpret what the Constitution means. And I think that there for Douglas, we're starting to get this picture of what it means to be engaged in the political life of 
quality. I don't think he's making a point that just any ordinary citizen can do the technical legal work that jurists do. Rather, I think he's saying that what constitutional interpretation really is, is trying to decide what we as a community value and fighting over, contesting what we should value. So I think for the extent that it might be worthwhile to lay out some of the themes we've been talking about in Douglas' political philosophy, I think the most compressed version you find there. You get them in a different angle if for like a more historically oriented class in a speech that Douglas gives in 1855 on the anti-slavery movement is the title, where Douglas there is telling the development or the, the, the successes and failures of abolitionism through that, that year, through 1855. Um, and that develops for Douglas this theory of, of change, social change and power. So there we're getting something which is more like a, uh, like a social scientific perspective. On mm-hmm. this. I think it's the one of the closest moments to, to and Douglas has thought to all of the ways that Du Bois approaches similar questions mm-hmm. of uh, anti-racist emancipatory politics later on. And then if you're going to teach at least for a few weeks or a whole seminar, I do think that my bondage and my freedom is uh, uh, worth having students read. Perfect. Thank you so much. This was really fun and I learned a lot. No, yeah, this was totally a blast. Thank you for listening to New Voices in Philosophy. Production of the podcast is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada as part of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project. This episode was produced by me, Olivia Branscombe. The music you hear is 17th century female composer Elizabeth-Claude Jaquette de la Guerre's Sonata No. 2 in D major, performed on the violin by Pizzeria Armenici. For more information about the project, and for future episodes, please visit our website, newnarrativesinphilosophy.net. We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you.